0: again. I was supposed to uh, do a few things today that I did not do. Uh, One is to dismiss uh, the little kids. Calvin bailed me out. Uh, The other was to dismiss students. Uh, I think Michelle knew that I would likely forget that, so she did that for me. Wonderful. Uh, You know, the other thing uh, among probably others I'm not even thinking of is I was supposed to get my notes in the digital program for you, and they're not there. So uh, if you're already there looking for them going, hey, uh, has, has it gone awry. No, uh, your friend Stu has gone awry. So if you if you hear enough this morning that you go, that's valuable to me, and you would like me to send you the notes, uh, send me a text or an email, and I, I would be uh, delighted to send that stuff to you. Uh, my apologies for not getting that to you sooner. Uh, he snapped the chains, the text said, that Michelle read. And this, this concept of running back to God, which found itself Percolating to the top a a number of times today, as we sang, as we prayed, as we heard from scripture, uh, our ability to run toward God, to come back to Him, uh, says maybe more uh, about our view of God than it does His character. Now, don't let me put this on you. Uh, God is God, and uh, God's character is immovable. Uh, But our ability to run to God has a lot more to do with how we see Him than who He is. Uh, Frankly, if we saw Him for who He is, we would have never ran away in the first place. Uh, So I want to help us today through the text God's given us to kind of frame all of that in as I sense the Holy Spirit pulling all those pieces together together. Uh, and that text in Psalm talks about his great love, his great love for us. The Hebrew writer, again, as we've said so many times here, the Hebrew writer says to us that we can walk boldly to the throne of grace, knowing we will find mercy and grace when we come to him. That, that's about how we see God. Uh, and we are unlikely to approach a holy and righteous and perfect and immovable God if we also see him as sort of ticked off with us and looking for a way to smite us. Uh, So let, let us approach that in that way. Pray with me as we get started. Father, Son, and Spirit, out of your perfect community, overflowing with love and contentment, you said let us create humanity in our image, man and woman, And after it was all done, you said, it was very good. May we experience the goodness you intended for us today. And may the transformation that your Holy Spirit is seeking to do on each of our hearts uh, find a, a great willingness from us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians 3. Beginning in verse 15, Uh, let let me just say uh, as briefly as I can, bear down, friends, uh, because like Paul has not gotten into a better mood. Um, He starts the chapter with, you foolish Galatians, again, he said it a number of times. Now, a friend can sit down with me and call me a fool probably once in a conversation. Uh, If a friend (laughs) tells me that a couple of times, I'm probably out uh, and Paul does it at least a second time here. So, um, But there is goodness and hope in all of this. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Dear brothers and sisters, here is an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or amend an irrevocable agreement, so it is in this case. God gave the promises to Abraham and his child. And notice that the Scripture says doesn't say to his children, as as if it meant many descendants. Rather, it says to his child. And that, of course, means Christ. This is what I'm trying to say. The agreement God made with Abraham could not be canceled 430 years later when God gave the law to Moses. God would be breaking his promise. For if the inheritance could be received by keeping the law, then it would not result in accepting God's promise. But God graciously gave it to Abraham as a promise. Verse 19. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and his people. Now, a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, a call back to the Shema of the Old Testament there. God, who is one. Oh, Stu lost his place by adding things to the text. Uh, But God, who is one, thank you, uh, end of verse 20, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. Is there conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not! Exclamation point. Grammar matters. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. The old life of sin and shame and the pattern that has been created all the way in the garden of life as humanity, which begins with sin and a, and a loss of our innocence, whether it's the innocence of your marriage or the innocence of your purity or the innocence of whatever it might be, that, that loss leads you to hide. And that hiding leads to shame. And that shame leads to anger. And that anger leads to murder. This is the process of Genesis 1 to Genesis 4 and the encouragement for us to find new life in Christ because we can't move it in reverse. I wish we could. We can't do Genesis 4 back to Genesis 1, and we ought not because a second naivete is even better than at first. And the second naivete is found in the life of Christ. And so we try hard to measure up. We try hard to meet the expectations of our spouses whose expectations are unreasonable and inhumane. We try hard to measure up to the demands of a boss or a board or a constituency or a customer base. But those expectations can never be met One, because they're always changing and increasing. And two, because we still are not perfect. We try hard to be the parent we never had, but we are the parent that our kids have, and so we're imperfect. We try hard to portray affluence and joy and sexiness on the internet, and yet everyone who looks on at it just cringes at our feeble attempts. Yet so often, all of that marked failure, all of that uninhibited loneliness, crying out for attention, calls us back to the good life that Jesus invites his disciples to live. You see, the the tone here from the Apostle Paul, while a little bit sharp, certainly, and inarguably convinced, as Paul always seemed to be, It feels a little bit like that firm grasp on the jacket of a friend trying to shake some sense into them. I don't know if that's ever happened to you or if that would just lead to violence, but imagine for a moment a trusted friend, like a friend you really trust, you really love, grabs you by the scruff of the shirt and says, I need your attention. Pay attention. And in that moment, they somehow broke through. In that moment, somehow it didn't feel like a power over or a coercion or some sort of uh, weird threat, but it, it felt like a friend who deeply loves, who's just trying to get your attention. I remember a few of my kids uh, who responded really well to Jen or I grabbing their faces, um, and I don't mean like in a weird or violent way, but like in a gentle, like, "Hey, I, I just I need you to look at that right now. We got we need to have a moment." And and one of my kids who was famous for being sent out of just about every restaurant she ever sat in from the time she was five years old till, well, she's 17 now, and it still happens every once in a while. You can fill in the blank. (laughs) It's kind of we've got to get your attention. And Paul's just trying to get the attention of his friends who he loves dearly. We've anchored a bit longer in chapter 3 than is our norm around here because chapter 3 is such a crux to the letter of Galatians. Such a crux to understanding the way we approach or run from God may actually say more about our toxic relationship with his way than it does his lack of availability to us or sense of disapproval of us or whatever else it might be. Uh, to this, Paul says to Galatia then and To us, Disciples Church, now, Oh, foolish people, who has cast a spell on you? That's how he opens chapter 3 and verse 1. Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? And it may be the first of many questions for you today that I'd like to pose in these kind of remaining moments. Who has cast a spell on me? Who has cast a spell on you? Is it consumerism? Is it performance? Is it success at work? Is it the love of others? Is it to control my world? so to be sure that no one can ever hurt me again like the one who did that one time? Who has cast a spell? Now, the news gets really good here as the day goes on. But as is the reality in most good news, if we... Don't do some careful self-exploration and some deep self-examination. It's not that the news won't be good. It's that we won't realize how bad we need the good news. So news that is good that I don't think I need is not really good news. Uh, When I was growing up, my mom thought the TV uh, was um, maybe not the devil, but it had a real good relationship with the devil, and they were good friends. And um, my mom usually watches online. I love you, mom. Uh, And it was a great gift that you gave us. Uh, And so we didn't get TV all week, most weeks. And so there was a little square TV in our living room, but there was no cable. And I remember there was this little like plastic box on there where you had to slide a little um, finder by hand to a number. Anybody ever remember these guys? And we got like three stations. And one of those stations, which really got almost nothing, um, was Saturday Morning Cartoons. But on Saturday mornings, we got to watch all the TV we wanted. And we would get up and we would watch cartoons. And I tell you what, that was really good news. Our friends would come to the house on Saturday morning and say, hey, do you want to play? We were like, no, what kind of a moron would want to play? on Saturday? It's cartoons, man. It's cartoons, the Roadrunner. And they're like, whatever, I watch cartoons every day. like, well, I don't. So uh, we're, we're going to do it. My mother just texted me. Um, to- LAUGHTER I'm in so much trouble. I just want to say again, Mom, how much I love you. What a gift it was. That's awesome. My phone's on uh, airplane mode, but she snuck through the Wi-Fi or something. I don't know. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, The life of a, anyway. Cartoons were really good news for us on Saturday. And and maybe for the rest of our neighbors, it was just not a big deal. They'd rather play, but that's because they had them all the time. I want to ask you a series of questions to help you do a little self-examination today. And if you're unwilling to do self-examination, this is your time to refresh football or whatever's going on today or, uh, you know, look at Instagram or or whatever you want to do. But I I want to encourage you to lean in. I want to encourage you to answer these four questions for yourself and, and see if you can't answer any of them with a yes. Uh, if you've got a piece of paper, mark it down. If you're using a phone, maybe uh, titch it down or, or just make memory of the four questions and how many yeses you got. Now, I'm not gonna do a show of hands later and there'll be no shaming in the back of the room for anybody who didn't answer yes. Um, uh, question number one, and maybe it'd even be helpful if you close your eyes as I ask them. Oh, I'm not directing that, but just if that's helpful to you. Question one. If your thoughts at any point this week took you to the cross of Christ, and caused you to reflect on what Jesus has done for you? Give yourself one, one yes. do you just think back over your week. Self-examine. At any point throughout my week, did my mind, did my heart direct me to the cross of Christ? And all the cross has done for me. Maybe you were here last Sunday, that's a week ago, and you took communion and you were... You were taken there, right? Did your your mind go to the cross? Question two. If you have arrived this day, if you've arrived today in this place with a story in hand of how God used you in the life of another this week to bring healing or hope or encouragement in Christ, give yourself a point. Think back through your week. At any point this week, can you remember a time where you go, oh, you know what? I think God used me in that moment to bring hope or encouragement to somebody. Question number three. If you've arrived today, having heard God speak this week clearly, whether audibly or whether in a whisper, just a sense in your soul, or as you were studying or reading scripture, you just knew God was speaking to you. Give yourself a point. Give yourself a yes. And finally, number four. If you served another this week who is lower than you in your view on kind of the the cultural hierarchy and in your service of that person who's beneath you, they taught you something. Give yourself a point. Give yourself a yes. Not when it's critical that that person be somebody that you view as lower than you. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it was an employee. Maybe it was a homeless friend in the shelter. How'd you do? Don't answer out loud. How'd you do? And, and, and the follow-up, and maybe more importantly than how you did, is how you feel being asked those questions by your friend. What does it do to you? How do, yeah, a little icky, right? Somebody's doing the... Ugh. Some people may feel a little gross. There's really kind of two binary uh, responses on questions in this territory for all of us most of the time. Now, listen, I recognize that I'm getting to ask the questions, so it's real easy for me, right? Uh, But I get asked these questions a lot too. And these kinds of self-assessments often go kind of one of two negative ways. One is finally, finally, a way I can kind of measure myself against the others. Finally, a way I can get some sort of sense for how I'm doing as a Christian. Great, these four questions, those are super helpful to me. And you know what? I got two out of four. That's pretty stinking good, right? Three out of four. You know what? Actually, I think I probably got four out of four. My memory is pretty bad, so I bet there were a few times I got all four, right? Some You're doing some sort of uh, you know, negotiated math in your own head, and you're going, finally, there's a way to know in a finite way how I'm doing. A second negative response, and we recognize like, that's not good, right? That's that helpful to us. Okay, good. Just want to make just want to make sure. Uh, show of hands on that. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, secondly, uh, the response is ugh. One more reminder of what a bad Christian I am. Why do I even try this anyway? Why even try? Golly, all that stuff just seems so otherworldly to me. I hope nobody finds me out. I, I'm sure you can feel. Uh, Some sense in both of these responses and the way we measure our response in each of them. The reality that in both, we must own that we have shrugged off the living in Christ and traded it back for our toxic relationship with the law. You see, Paul writes in all of this, in all throughout chapter three, which we covered two weeks ago, and then Dan took us a little further last week from Michelle, the week prior, and then this week we arrive again at the end of chapter three, this toxic relationship that the church had then and we have now, with whatever it is to be a good religious person. These are the things one must do. And and Ancient Israel has Ten Commandments and the 874,000 laws that spin out of that, that this is the measurement, the measuring stick by which I will know how I'm doing in this life of faith or religion. And we have our own now, right? You know, what music we listen to or or how fast we are, whatever it might be. And all of this is rooted in a, a toxic, ongoing relationship with the law and Really, more importantly, uh, we keep it inanimate so we can deal with it. (laughs) But more importantly, a toxic relationship with how we see God's character and who God actually is, what moves him. You see, if we're being honest, and we scored a point on any of those four questions... The miracle of each of those is this, and maybe you caught it in the questions, but the only thing we did in any of those four is show up and pay attention. (laughs) See, the icky thing that you felt there, or the, yes, finally a way I can measure what I've done, that's actually, you read that into it. I read that into it. Because in each of these four questions is the reality that God did something. Christ died on the cross and did something for us. God used a lowly one to speak to you. That's God's thing that he did. God orchestrated that divine encounter. That was God. God spoke to you through his word or through a song or through a friend or through his voice. God sent you an angel to teach you. That is God's stuff that he did. And if we see it as this stuff I do to gain his pleasure, his merit, his good favor, it speaks to how I am seeing God in a way that he had never intended me to see him. Look back at verse 21 if you will with me he says is there conflict then between god's law and god's promises well absolutely not if the law could give us new life we could be made right by god by obeying it. see of course the the primary miss here is uh to live up to all of that stuff is impossible I study really hard so that God will be pleased with me, or I do really good things so that God will take care of me. And, and all of that, like, there's, there's a futility to all of it, that if God is actually real and at work in the world, and I believe that he is, that all of that's impossible if that's the way God works. Now, the other problem with a kind of life rooted in this way of living is that we then see our relationship with God that way. We also see our relationship with others that way. You see, fundamentally, the way you see God is actually the way you also see others. There's no separating. Like, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. Like, you can treat me really, really bad today, and I can put that in a nice little box, and if I so desire, I can forget it tomorrow. It just sits in a little, icky little box. Now, You know, the problem with those boxes is eventually they, you know, because when we put them in a box, we put TNT there with them, and then throw matches in there, and then just wait for heat, you know, and then they blow up. But see, the the way we see God is actually the way we also relate with one another. If we are insecure in our relationships, if we are threatened in our relationships, if we feel like I must always have control over you or you will screw everything up, we also see God in that same way. It is an overflow of how we see God. Inversely, if I view God as cold and distant and unhappy, over time, I become cold and distant and unhappy. And others feel that. Allow me to describe uh, our toxic relationship with the law uh, using maybe three metaphors. Um, I know this is heavy stuff, and I know it um, will likely uh, tweak a few. Um, That's okay. I've been tweaking a few for a long time, and I I don't take joy in that. It's not like what I set out to do, but um, it's okay if it happens. three metaphors for our toxic relationship with the law that may help you find yourself in this story uh i want to do this by talking about a dog on a leash a driver over the speed limit and a debate without truth metaphor one of our toxic relationship with the law and with who god is uh my dog champ is the best dog that has ever lived um he's better than your dog uh he's better than your dog in just about every way um you are welcome to come show me pictures of your dog later and tell me all about how great your dog is, and I won't even be listening to any of that that you say. I probably won't be looking at the picture because I already know my dog is the greatest. But here's one thing my dog does. Um, he must be on a leash anytime he's outside because he's got beagle in him. Anybody ever had a beagle? Um, if they see a bird, they are hunting that bird, and it, yeah, they're gone. He's just, he's gone, Um He especially has mistaken skunks for birds, which seems difficult to do, and he has yet to ever win that battle with a skunk. Uh, And so anytime we bring Champ outside, we have to put Champ on a leash. And for any of you who've ever sat on my front porch with me at night, you know that Champ comes out, there's actually a leash attached to our little outdoor couch, and Champ jumps up on the couch, and we just click the leash on it, And it's fine. It's like, I don't even think about it anymore. I just leash him on, and then he can't run. And it actually lowers his anxiety a little bit. Like, I think he then feels, or at least this is dad talking, I think he feels now he doesn't have to defend me. He doesn't have to chase off every bird. I'm on the leash. I'm cool. I can lay down. Here's the problem. Some of us see our relationship with God as we are misbehaving dogs who can never be trained, who must be put on a leash. And and as long as God's got me on a leash and, and tethers me close by, I'll be okay. Two problems here, at least. (laughs) One is you're not a dog. Um, You're a child of God. So God actually sees you as his beloved, as his masterpiece. So when you insist on God tethering you or leashing you, you're saying to God, God, the way you see me is wrong. You got it wrong, God. You should view me differently. The second problem here is uh, then God exists primarily to point out how you failed. This sort of view of, I'm a dog on a leash with God. You primarily see God as there to point out what's wrong. Uh, Metaphor two, an argument to win. I don't know, uh, Pastor Dan mentioned his social media feed last week uh, and how his social media feed is just, uh, you know, these guys out there who talk about your 24-hour day and, there's no such thing as an eight-hour workday. There's three eight-hour workdays. And if you don't get up at 4 a.m. and work eight hours there and then work out for eight hours, and then you know, you're you just lazy. Like, I'm just going to beat you in life. And you, you know the rest of us roll our eyes at that and go, like, it sounds like something Michael Scott would say in the office. Like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Um, you actually have to sleep. That's actually important. So uh, my social media feed seems to just be uh, some of these popular names of whom I will not speak of. Um, who like to debate and argue, and in the process of debate and argue, make the other look stupid, um, which sort of ends up being the end goal, right? Um, you fill in your news person in the desk they sit behind. You fill in your debater who's, you know, it's always some guy who has a PhD who's arguing with college kids in their first year of college. Like, wow, you're a big man. You can, you can debate an 18-year-old who just took Philosophy 101, and you have a PhD. You know, aren't you so smart, right? Uh, And we sometimes view God this way, as he's this giant PhD in the sky whose role is to make us or remind us how stupid we are. And this reality that that maybe seeking what is actually true doesn't matter in that relationship with God. That it's just about intimidation. It's just about bullying. It's just about winning the argument. Just get it right and everything will go right. Well, you know, the problem with your life, the reason everything's going wrong is because you got it wrong. And this is now God reminding you how wrong you got it. A couple key problems here. Uh, when our relationship with God's law is toxic in this way is, is first, uh, God becomes my adversary who I must either defeat or avoid. And you have these people in your life, right, who, you know, will pick a fight with you, and you're doing in real time, real quick. Is this a fight I want to fight? And generally, the, the way you're deciding whether this is a fight you want to fight is usually about, can I win this, right? Um, maybe it's about, can I just get out unscathed? But we sometimes view God this way. God's up in heaven. He's got all the answers, and his role is to show us what a bad thing we've done, what a bad person we've become. And so God becomes our adversary to debate. And so when God says in Scripture, "Do this," we say, "Well, God, you couldn't have possibly meant that because da, 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 da. And we, we argue our way out of scriptural truth, we argue our way into our own cultural truth. The second major problem with that is that victory becomes our life's end game, not transformation. Just winning becomes all that matters. last two. Where's the good news? It's coming, I promise. Metaphor number three, uh, a driver over the speed limit. Uh, this is a little bit confessional, but I'm going to confess to you guys, I don't really know the speed limit anywhere I drive. <laughs> like, do you? What's the speed limit on Iron Point? Anybody know? No, police, you, you stop. Law enforcement officer, he's like, well, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, Based on that and that. No, 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 I don't bring truth and logic into this argument, Kirk. Um, It's 40? It's 50? Anybody else? 45? Any other numbers you want to throw out? It actually changes three times on Iron Point, believe it or not. Changes three times. This is fascinating. Which is why I just don't pay attention to speed limits ever. I just don't. And as you know, I travel a lot for work and I'm usually driving a rental car at least a couple days out of every week in a new place where I haven't been. And so I just don't pay attention to speed limits whatsoever. You know how I avoid getting tickets? I just go with the flow of traffic. I just let traffic tell me how fast I'm gonna go. And here's the problem uh, with our relationship with God being framed this way, which is maybe my tendency. We just let culture tell us how we're gonna relate with God. Whatever culture says is good now is what's good with me. I find, And you can find a verse to prove anything, right? Um, And sometimes you got to, you know, massage it a bit or find a different translation that you like a little bit better. But ultimately, you know, pick any crazy position you want to pick and maybe not even a crazy one, but pick any position. And if you and I sit down with 20 minutes and Google, we can probably find a verse to prove our point, which may be a red flag immediately. If I'm trying to find verses to prove my point, it may mean that God's point doesn't matter to me. You see, so often in our relationship with God, some of us or maybe all of us some of the time sort of relate with God in the way that I relate with traffic patterns. The speed limits don't matter to me. Just go with the flow of traffic and I won't get in trouble. As long as we're all going 80, I mean, the chances are really slim that we're all gonna get pulled over and it's probably gonna be that dumb red car up ahead that gets pulled over. I'll just find myself slotted in three or four back and chances are I'm okay. And this is kind of how we live our internal life with God sometimes. I don't really know what God would have for me. I'll just stay in the flow of wherever I am. Problems here are too many to count because I live here so often, I know. But I'll say at least two of them are we we just end up measuring our lives against those around us. Well, I'm a little more holy than that person. I'm I'm a little more generous than them, and well, I psh, I served two nights down there, and they didn't serve any loser. <laughs> I showed up early to that meeting; they were late. We j- and everything is a measuring stick. And just as long as I'm a little ahead of that person, and you know, I'm I'm okay being a little behind a Tita because Tita's like a saint, so I I don't have to be quite as holy as Tita, but I got to make sure I'm holier than you know whatever the name is. You know, most of you are thinking of your spouse right now, but you know whatever. Um, <laughs> As long as I'm in the sweet spot between, I'm, I'm okay, right? A second problem here is, um, and this is the largest problem, maybe the largest problem we all face, is that in this way of seeing God, his voice is a nuisance. Because God's voice <laughs> has almost never told anybody, just stay in the midst of everybody else, you'll be fine. Been designed and intricately formed in your mother's womb with special gifts and divine intervention and unique experience. And God's design for you is to live uniquely for the betterment of the world in which you live. Good news is later in verses 23 and 24, Paul points out some beautiful good news when he says, Before The way of faith in Christ was available, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, Paul says, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way, he says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith, and now that way of faith has come and we no longer need the law as our guardian. It is merely a reminder to of us of how far we are from God and our carnal self. And so the transformational invite here, friends, from Paul is to the way of Christ, is to reject the former things and lean into what God is doing anew. Paul writes in another letter in Romans chapter 12, he says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you by changing the way you think. I cannot tell you how many times I've led people through true self, false self, or led people on spiritual retreats, or been in difficult conversations and the person across the table has said some version to me of, this all sounds like psycho babble, and let's just get back to the Bible. And I just wanna say, okay, let's get back to the Bible. God wants to change the way we think. The way we think. We're thinking of God incorrectly if we think the goal of my Christian life is just stay in the flow or just argue God to my point or just avoid him because he's troubled. God's great desire is to transform us into the image of Christ. The rest of the chapter dives into that next section of great hope and great good news. Reminding us that we are children of God. We can call him Abba, Father, because we are his children. And it's... Heirs to a kingdom live different than subjects of an angry tyrant. We do not serve an angry tyrant. We serve a risen king. There's no longer Jew, nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. You see, God's desire is to transform us, to enjoy his goodness, to take pleasure in his will, the scriptures say, and to relish his perfect desire for our life. And this begins when we change the way we think about ourselves and about God. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a heady topic, and it's a dense subject matter. So, Spirit, this will only land and take root in any of our hearts if it's by your power. And that feels like good news to me. God, continue moving in our midst as we close our moments together. And may you continue your work of transformation to make us look just like Jesus looks. So that when a world, when a spouse, when a child, when a friend sees us, they just see Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen. In the morning this week, I challenge you to take Romans chapter 12, verse two, and uh, read, well, read verses one and two, those two verses, Read it three times through very slowly each morning over the next week. Romans 12, one through two. I read it and some of it was on screen. And then after you read it, answer this question as you journal. Write it down either in a note card on your phone or on a journal if you write a journal, whatever that might be. Uh, Answer this question, God, how do you wanna transform me today by changing the way I think? Friends, this is before TikTok this is before email. This is before texts. This is before any of that. Just set the discipline. Sit up in the morning, first thing. 12, one through two, read it three times slow and ask God the question. Maybe your question begins with God. I don't even know if you're out there, <laughs> but if you are, how do you wanna change me today? And whether it's God or whether it's your internal voice screaming out about the things about you that you don't like about you, uh you're going to come up with some stuff you want to change. 10 minutes in the morning, do that. And then each evening, the second prescription is this. Now read Romans 12, 6 through 10. Again, real slow, three times through, 12, 6 through 10. And then journal your answer to this question. God, how did I use my gifts today to love and honor others? And I think what you'll find if you'll do this for a week, uh, maybe two weeks would be ideal, but even a week you'll begin to feel the change happen pretty rapidly is you'll begin to connect the two ideas pretty quickly. The ways in which God wants to change the way you think and the ways in which God has uniquely made you to be an agent of love and honor and peace to a watching world. May the Lord bless you and keep you and may he cause his face to shine upon you. And may every day of your week be marked by God's goodness in your life. Stand with me, if you will. Let's worship.